So I'm, um, I'm Otterbury and I'm from Cambridge, I live in Cambridge, which is a very different place to Manchester. Um, every time I come to Manchester, I'm kind of reminded of that, um, how big Manchester is becoming, how populous Manchester is, how kind of gritty Manchester is. Uh, Cambridge is a very kind of genteel place. Um, Manchester is much more in your face. Um, the positive sides to that and <laughs> challenging sides to that. And uh, the, the, uh, one of the things that strikes me about coming here is the, uh, the number of homeless people. Uh, every time I come, it seems to, the number of people uh, sleeping out on the pavement, begging out on the pavement, seems to get bigger and bigger. And uh, um, It was quite a cold day, wasn't it, today? It was quite a clear day, but quite a cold day. And I was quite kind of cold going out, and there were people who were sitting on the pavement uh, for hours, sometimes sleeping on the pavement. And uh, it seems quite kind of shocking, actually. So Manchester, uh, you've got these, rather, I imagine, very expensive loft apartments. You've got a lot of money in Manchester, and uh, you've got a lot of poverty, too. And um, we do... I mean, there are people who beg in uh, Cambridge, but it's quite a shock to see so many, so many people out on the street, sleeping out on the street in Manchester. Um, good to be back in Manchester, good to be back at the, uh, the MBC, staying in the men's community, the new community above the centre. Uh, I hadn't been to the community, hadn't stayed in the community for about 18 years, I think. Um, I was very involved with the refurbishment of the Manchester uh, Centre. We got the warehouse and then we had to create this Buddhist Centre. And you'll have heard me talk about this if you've been to previous talks. Um, so being in, the, uh, being in the community again, now it is a community again, now it is a Buddhist community again, it's lovely. It really lifted my heart actually spending uh, the last two days there. It was very much part of the vision of uh, the creation of the, the Buddhist centre. And uh, it's 20 years, isn't it, since the centre opened, 1996. For me, it's very, very vivid. It was a hard time. It was a challenging time uh, leading up to the opening of the centre. Just before the opening of the centre, uh, the IRA uh, left their bomb in Manchester don't know whether any of you were living in Manchester at that time, but you'll kind of remember that. That changed the, changed the city. Um, 20 years ago, 20 years ago today. And uh, um, I, was mentioning, uh, I was mentioning this to Saul, and uh, Saul wasn't even born uh, 20 years ago. Uh, it seemed kind of incredible. Um, and... Twenty years ago, it makes me it makes me uh, reflect on the centre. We opened the centre. We put a lot of hard work into the Buddhist centre. Uh, blood went into the mortar here. Uh, that isn't just a metaphor. I mean, literally, blood went into the uh, the, the, the plaster here. And uh, why did we do it? I asked myself that question quite a lot in those days. 
Four o'clock in the morning, I'd wake up and I'd think, why are we doing this? Why have we moved from Chilton? Um, and uh, it got me thinking again, why are we doing this? What, what is the purpose of having a Buddhist centre? Is the purpose of having a Buddhist centre to uh, teach meditation? Is that what we're about? Are we a kind of uh, adult education centre? Uh, or are we an information centre? Are we passing on to the good people of Manchester uh, some of the mysteries of the East? Are we introducing uh, the people of Manchester to the Buddha, to the teachings of Buddhism? Are we teaching mindfulness? Is that our purpose here? Uh, so what is our purpose? And are we meeting that purpose? Um, so I'm just going to leave that hanging in the air uh, for a moment, for a few moments. I'm leaving that hanging in the air. And I'm going to talk about something completely different. And uh, I will come back uh, to that question. What are we doing here? Uh, what is our purpose here? I want to talk about something I watched on BBC um, iPlayer a few weeks ago. And um, I'd seen, you know the little box, sometimes you, at the programmes you've got a little box and a little picture, haven't you? And um, it was called The Age of Loneliness. And there was an old person in the little box. And I thought, oh, well, that must be a, that must be a documentary about uh, loneliness in old age. And um, I didn't look at it, I didn't kind of uh, open the programme until sometime later... And I watched, the, um, I watched the documentary, and the documentary wasn't just about loneliness and old age, it, was, uh, it covered all ages, all backgrounds, all uh, types of life in a way. The youngest person in the documentary, I think, was 18, and the oldest was 100, a 100-year-old kind of uh, lady. And uh, you can still watch this. I watched, I watched some of it last night. It's still on the site. And I recommend it, actually. Uh, it's a very, very moving documentary. One of the most moving things about it is that these people are willing to speak about their loneliness, which is a bit of a taboo subject, isn't it? It's willing to speak about their loneliness on camera. Uh, you know, it's going to be kind of broadcast. They're willing to admit that they are lonely. And um, I've experienced, I've experienced uh, loneliness in my life, really painful loneliness at some points in my life. And it is difficult to speak about, it is difficult to admit when you feel lonely. So I, I want to talk about some of what, uh, um, some of the people in that documentary, some of the kind of moving people. They were not sad or kind of pathetic people, they were people like us, they were people like me, people like you. And uh, the, first, um, the first person in the documentary was this 18-year-old young woman. She'd left home, she'd left her good friends, she'd left home for the adventure of university. Um, her friends were really excited, you know, that she, she was going to do this, she was going to start this new era in her life. So she went off to university full of kind of hope. She was going to make new friends. And it wasn't like that. She found it really, really difficult to make friends. And um, she kept in touch, she said she kept in touch with her friends through Facebook and other social media. 
And on Facebook, you don't put that you are lonely. You don't put that you haven't been out for two days. You put the kind of uh, the high points in your life, don't you? I believe I'm not. I'm not. Put, I, I'm not a member of Facebook, but I imagine it's like this. You put the things that you've been doing, which are fun, and uh, so she was. She, in a way, put things on Facebook. She wasn't telling. She wasn't telling the kind of true story of that, and. Uh, it was difficult to kind of watch, in a way, her talking about her isolation and her loneliness and uh, how her bedroom was both a refuge and a prison. Uh, so for two or three days sometimes, she didn't leave her bedroom. This young woman, and uh, um, very courageous of her to talk about that. Um, several of the people interviewed... Uh, were elderly. Uh, they'd been uh, they'd been married. They'd lost their partner. Maybe their partner of many years, uh, fifty, sixty years sometimes. Uh, one uh, old lady was talking about how her partner was everything to her, everything. And um, when he was ill, when she was looking after him, she never believed that he would actually leave her. And there was a sort of bitterness, there was even an anger that he'd gone, <laughs> he'd left her. Uh, both love and um, kind of anger, frustration. Um, and they'd had no friends. Uh, they'd had each other. And this happened to, to several of the people being interviewed. They'd, they'd, they were everything to one another. And when one of them went, there was nobody. Um, it was a kind of searing, searing loneliness. Every day, waking up, keeping yourself busy, keeping yourself active, um, and for the long day ahead. It was really moving to, to and as I say, really moving to, to hear them talk about that. Um, so bereavement was a, a, a great cause of loneliness. And divorce, divorce and separation was another great cause of loneliness. And uh, with divorce, uh, your friends, you had a, a group of friends, were your friends. You, as a couple, they were, they, they were friends of you both. Sometimes with separation and with divorce, your friendship circle disappeared. I don't know whether your friends felt, you know, they didn't know who to be friends with. Uh, but your friendship uh, circle very often uh, disappeared. Um, they were interviewing one man who'd got uh, two teenage sons, and uh, he loved his sons. Um, but he longed for grown-up conversation. <laughs> he longed for someone to share his hopes with, his fears with, his thoughts with, his life with. Um, there were people who were lonely because they wanted love. They wanted a partnership. They felt that if they only had a partner, if they only found someone on these dating sites, if they found someone, that would be the end of their loneliness. And there was quite a contrast between that because you also had people on who had been, had found someone and had lost them through divorce or through death. Um, there was one, uh, one uh, man in his 40s who um, got up four in the afternoon, he got up. And for him, 
What helped him survive were computer games. They filled, they filled the kind of gaping hole of his life. And um, the, he was asked by the person interviewing, um, how, do you feel about the, how do you feel about being interviewed? How do you feel about the camera crew being here? And uh, he said it was wonderful. In a way, it was great having company. <laughs> so although he was kind of uh, being broadcast in a way to the nation... Uh, for the time the camera crew were there, he had company. And he said it would, have, it would make so much difference if I had someone, just for an hour, once or twice a week, just to talk to. Uh, that would mean that uh, my life, I would have something to live for in the week. Um, so today, in the UK, more people than ever before in our history live alone. Seven million people live alone. We live in our big cities, don't we, our growing cities. We live on top of one another uh, in our cities. And uh, there is an, an epidemic, they say, of loneliness. Loneliness and depression. Those two things feeding one another. Uh, depression uh, leads to isolation. Loneliness uh, leads to depression. And uh, it, was, it, gave me a, it gave me a lot of food for thought, uh, the programme. Um, as I say, it was deeply, deeply touching. People allowing you into this painful, painful experience of their of their lives, and it reminded me of an experience in my own life. Um, when I, uh, for a long time, when I was a child, I wanted to be a, uh, I wanted to be a priest. I wanted to be a Catholic priest. From the age of seven, uh, I was brought up in an Irish Catholic family. I wanted to to lead a spiritual life from the age of seven. And badgering my parents, they eventually let me go to a seminary when I was 15 to train for the priesthood. And um, within a few months, I lost my faith. It all kind of unraveled. It was such a painful time in my life. My whole... My whole trajectory in life, my whole purpose of life sort of disappeared. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. Um, so I came home. Uh, I came home. My parents, while I was at the seminary, had uh, separated. And um, I was looking after my two sisters. My mother left my sisters with my father. It's a long story. I won't go into here, but a long and painful story. And my father uh, put me into put me into. I went into a college of further education to, to do my O-levels. And this was the, this was the uh, what, what year would have this, this been? The 70s. So it was long hair and Afghan coats. Yeah? So imagine that. You've probably seen it on television if you weren't there. And um, I, I went to this college and I'd got short back inside, so I was at a seminary. I was so square. And I started midterm. And um, so I was introduced to this class of students who, who had all connected, who had all bonded. And I, uh, I was alone. And um, when we went for coffee, I sat on my own. When I went for lunch, I had lunch on my own. Oh, it was a really painful time for me. And uh, it was a little bit in the, in the canteen, in the refectory, as if there was <laughs> this big sign saying... Uh, he's on his own, you know. And uh, um, sometimes people would approach me, but I didn't, I didn't want pity either. I didn't want sympathy. 
But I longed for I longed for connection. I I also I suppose pushed people away. It was a very very painful time. So um, what I did a strategy for coping with this. I stopped going in. So every day I would say to my father, I'm going into college. I'd get the bus in and, uh, with my sandwiches and I wouldn't go to college. I'd, I'd hang around the town all day, uh, the library all day, trying to avoid anybody from the college. And then I'd get the bus home uh, you know, in the evening. My dad would say, how was college? And I would say, it was fine, yeah. Yeah, it was fine. And it went on like this day after day, week after week. The weekends were, were fine. They were kind of normal times, and then the week would start again. And um, I loved my dad, and together we were kind of raising uh, my sisters, and uh, I felt it really, really important to be honest with him. But I couldn't be honest. I couldn't admit uh, how isolated and lonely I'd, I felt at college. And the, the, the more I didn't go in... Uh, the more I didn't tell him what was going on with me, the lonelier and more isolated I felt. And there was a time during that where I considered actually finish ending my life. Now when I think about it, the tragedy that that would have been, you know. And um, I thought if I hang on to the next term, things might be different. And uh, so this was, you know, this was a few months away. There was, a, there was a dangerous time because uh, my dad was giving me uh, my m- money for my bus fare. My contract, uh, my student kind of contract hadn't come through. Anyway, um, he said, why, didn't, why hasn't your contract come through? So he rang the college and he left a message and then he got a letter one day saying the reason why I hadn't got a contract was I, was, I hadn't been in college for several weeks. Um, so when I came home from college, <laughs> I was presented with this, and uh, I said, there must be some mix-up. You've seen me going into college every day. <laughs> and uh, it was, I can't tell you um, how awful a period that was for me. Um, I couldn't talk to anybody about it. I felt more and more kind of uh, isolated, more and more lonely, more uh, paranoia, you know, almost. Anyway, the term, the new year started, a new um, influx of students, and I joined, I joined again as a new student. I joined and started again. And uh, I made friends. Whew. I made friends, but I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten that uh, period of my life. Um, That um, how depressing, how lonely that was. And I was, um, how old was I at this, this point? I was 16. 16 and I couldn't talk to anybody about it. Um, I'm gonna, I finished talking about the programme, but just by mentioning one more person from the, uh, the <coughs> documentary... So this, uh, this is a young, a young woman who's uh, from uh, New Zealand, very, very confident, a real kind of go-getter, uh, who knows in a way what she wants. She'd come over from New Zealand with her husband to London um, and very successful and uh, 
they decided to separate. He'd gone back to New Zealand. She wanted to stay. And she was putting more and more time into work. And uh, the reason why she was doing that is she didn't want to go home. She didn't want to go home because at home there was nobody. And this very, very confident, attractive, um, very um, likeable a woman, the mask slipped for a moment and it was, uh, it was there how lonely she was, how isolated and lonely. And uh, she, but she, she had got, uh, she would got kind of initiative and she was involving herself in a charity that looked after elderly old people. And she, you know, they met once a Sunday, twice a Sunday, every month she would go along. And she said to the camera, she said to the interviewer, in a way, she didn't know who was getting most out of this, uh, whether she was getting most out of it or whether uh, the older people were getting out of it. Um, and it was very, very, it was very uh, touching. Um, and after the programme, what I do in the, in the mornings is very often I go for a walk by the River Cam and uh, I pass people on their own, young people, old people, men, women, and uh, I've begun to look at them in a different way. I've begun to wonder what their, what their history is. Uh, are they just out for a walk like me, or are they bereaved, or are they divorced, are they lonely? Um, it got me kind of, it got me really thinking. For the young, the loneliness may just be circumstantial. When when circumstances change, um, they may make friends. Um, like the young woman at university who eventually did make friends. But they, uh, they too, like the middle-aged, they too, like the elderly, uh, may not. Uh, they may be caught in a cycle of increasing loneliness. Um, we're social creatures, aren't we, as human beings? We thrive with companionship. We thrive in friendship. And uh, we can thrive also sometimes living a solitary life, but a solitary life of choice. When uh, aloneness is not a choice, when it's something that is uh, imposed or seemingly imposed upon us, it can be really searing. And... uh, I remember having, uh, having found Buddhism. I, I first encountered Buddhism in 1984. I wanted meaning in my life. I wanted a spiritual meaning in my life. I wasn't quite sure what I meant by that, but I wanted something that was bigger than me in my life. Um, what I didn't expect, I think, was friendship. I didn't expect um, that friendship was one of the highest values of Buddhism that I would meet some of the, who would become some of my closest and deepest uh, friends. Um, And this takes me back, uh, in a way, to my question at the beginning. What what is the Buddhist Centre about? Is it to inform people about Buddhism? Is it to teach them a meditation technique? 
to introduce them to mindfulness. What is our purpose? What is the uh, what is it we're trying to do at the Buddhist Centre? And I think what we're trying to do is tr- we're trying to create spiritual community. That's why we teach Buddhism. That's why we teach meditation. We're trying to create uh, a truly human context. We're trying to uh, well, develop spiritual community. I think, I think to be truly human, you need meaning in your life. And you need a meaning that is bigger than you. Um, being able to respond to a truth that is bigger than your truth. Um, this can get abstract when really it's quite concrete. To find ourselves, we need to find others. We need to positively move towards others. We need to kind of self-forget. Um, and in that self-forgetting, we awaken to the reality of others. That there are others. The key, I think, is selflessness. Being unselfish, being interested in others. So when we, uh, when we teach meditation here at the centre, when we, when we lead a meditation course here at the centre, I think what is really important is that um, people are introduced to the possibility of something wider, something deeper. They're introduced to the possibility of living a kind of new life, not just going away with a meditation technique, not just going away with some information about Buddhism. And I think that is possible to do. I think it's possible to come on a meditation course and think at the end of the six weeks, you've got it, you just go away and you do it. Um, We live not just in in an age of increasing kind of isolation and loneliness, but we live in an age of uh, growing kind of individualism. where society is much less cohesive, uh, people are much less connected. That isn't that machine, is it? Mm. So I imagine, I hope that this is what we're doing in our in our Buddhist centres, our Tree Ratna Buddhist centres. We are <coughs> offering that. We are offering kind of a human community. We are offering spiritual community. Um, we're offering something, you take a step into the Buddhist centre, you don't know where that might lead. Uh, the people that you are there at the, uh, the beginner's course with, the drop-in course, the regular's course, these may, be, uh, these may be the important people that in a way make the difference in your life, um, are there for you and you are there for them in, in difficult times. During Christmas, I was away um, staying with friends, and there was a lot of stuff on the news about flooding, um, even flooding in Manchester. I imagine kind of uh, you know the, the River Irwell rising up. It wasn't quite as dramatic as that, was it? But in certain places in the north of England, I think they'd been flooded for the third time. And uh, on the news, this woman was saying uh, they're tired, they're exhausted, but One of the positive things about that, one of the positive things about a crisis situation is that people sometimes who have not talked to one another, 
people who are neighbours but not interacted, a crisis situation pushes you beyond your, your difference, your isolation. You help one another. You come together to help one another. Um, a crisis situation, something like that, a natural disaster, offers that possibility. Um, I remember there was some of that going on when the bomb went off here in Manchester. But then the crisis is over and uh, it's quite easy to return to normal. Um, we don't need to wait surely you know, for a crisis situation to kind of reach out. Um, so in a way, if there is something from tonight that I'd like you to kind of remember is that... Uh, uh, you, you playing a part in creating this spiritual community, in creating this um, connection with other people. Some of the people coming here are looking for meaning. Sometimes they're looking just to be less stressed. They're coming for all sorts of reasons. Some people are coming because uh, they're looking for something that is absent from their life, difficult to articulate. Um, and you may, you may play a part in helping them to articulate that, to express that. So what I want, to, what I want to kind of encourage us to do is to, if you're not doing this already, uh, is to help out. Um, not just when you ask, but actually seek out um, beginners courses drop-in classes, uh, see whether you can support them. Supporting them with some of your friends. Um, people coming along to our courses, they see the friendship between uh, the Buddhists, as I did. I remember going on my first retreat and seeing the friendship between the order members. I didn't know what it was, but I, that, I wanted some of that. I wanted that kind of connection in my life. Um, Seeing if you can support with your friends. Um, see if you can kind of reach out to people uh, with your friends. Uh, seeing what you can do. That person coming into the centre, um, although you might feel resistance to going over and talking to them, uh, go over and talk to them. One of the things uh, I would like to do is... Uh, I would like to, to help people. I would like to alleviate the problem of loneliness. The very, very human, the ordinary problem of loneliness. I imagine we've all been lonely, haven't we? Is anybody, any, maybe I should ask you that question. Has anybody here never experienced loneliness? Have you put your hand up? Never experienced loneliness in your life? <laughs> Oops. Um, kind of remembering, remembering that. Let me move towards the end of what I want to say. So first, we, we, need, um, we need to do what we can, I think, to, to reach out to people. To, be, to befriend people. You might even be saving somebody, somebody's life. I remember there was a young man I worked with uh, at Windhorse in Cambridge. What, not a Buddhist. Um, he'd come through the job centre. He'd wanted uh, some 
casual work and come through the job centre. And uh, he's quite a lonely, isolated young man and uh, very, very hard to reach. Um, quite well defended in a way, quite hard to reach, but in real need of being reached. Um, but unfortunately, actually, in the end, he took his life. And afterwards we thought, well, what could we have done? What more could we have done? But it was hard, it's difficult. There's no kind of uh, easy answer to that. He kept people at bay. And I think for the time he was working with us, I like to think that was a time, that was a, uh, a brighter kind of moment in his life. So the deeper our friendships, the deeper our sangha will be. Um, the more open we will we will be, the, m- the, the more open we must be to the world. Bhante Sangharakshita has said that Buddhism is spiritual community. When he opened the centre 20 years ago, uh, I was here. I was here for the opening of that. And he said we have a beautiful centre, but we mustn't stay within it. Uh, we must go out, we must, we must reach out to the people in Manchester. Uh, we must both reach out to them by going out and we must reach out to them when they come in to the Buddhist centre. To do that, uh, you need to deepen your spiritual practice. Uh, you need to deepen and deepen your connection with the Dharma and with one another. Now, we can talk about Sangha in an abstract way, uh, but Sangha is made up of individual spiritual friendships. Um, Look to your friendships, deepen your friendships. Um, may your friendships thrive, do things together. And um, I, would, uh, I would say, I'm not supposed to say this kind of thing, but I would say that you, you need to deepen and deepen your, your Dharma lives. You need to move closer and closer to the order. You need to enter the order. Uh, you need to join the spiritual community. You need to decisively commit yourself to the spiritual community. Uh, and once in the spiritual community, you need to keep committing yourself, keep deepening your practice. So first of all, we're trying to solve the problem of loneliness and isolation. That, uh, that is underpinned by something deeper that is underpinned by our egos, our our self-clinging. We need to get to the root delusion that keeps us isolated, keeps us apart from one another, stops us seeing the profound connection between us as human beings. And then we will create a real Sangha in Manchester. The more I come to Manchester, the more I see what a challenge you've got here. Um, here you are in this gritty old kind of uh, Victorian city, life out there, and uh, it's quite a challenge, it's quite a kind of buzz too. Um, Do what you can, create a deeper and deeper spiritual community. Um, And if you, there's a Jewish saying, (laughs) I'm not from a Jewish background, but we've just had a synagogue built next to us, next to our community in, uh, in Cambridge. And uh, I remember being told this Jewish saying, and it's, if you save one person's life, you save the whole of humanity. 
And if you take one person's life, you take the whole of humanity. So if you reach out, if you make a difference to one person's life, one person that comes to the centre, you've done a tremendous thing. If we do more of that, and we can do more of that as a Sangha, as a spiritual community, um, we can do so much more together than we can do alone. So those are some of my uh, thoughts. Um, I wish you well. I'm part of this altruistic kind of uh, project too. I don't know whether the next time I come to Manchester I will see a difference. <laughs> I think it's going to be a kind of a growing problem. No simple solutions. Um, but don't forget, don't forget uh, the world outside the Buddhist centre. Um, don't forget to kind of bring them into your meditation. Don't forget to actually do what you can in any way you can to help with the, uh, the problem of suffering in the world. I'll leave it there. Thank you.